Rod, Rod will be coming and... Um, that was Rod coming. Rod will come and have his lunch and I don't want to be in his way. My dad's lunches are, um, are tightly defined. Rod has the same lunch. Like, he has a Monday lunch, a Tuesday lunch, a Wednesday lunch, a Thursday lunch, a Friday lunch. Like, it has to be the same every, every week, otherwise he gets confused. I used to, when I, when I was a kid, and I had a friend called Andrew Bateman. Mm-hmm. And Andrew Bateman and I started learning the trumpet together when we were mm-hmm. very young. So I am listening, on... I was talking to my dog. No, that's fine. Um, the Monday night trumpet lesson that we had would mean that he and I would go to his house for tea... Afters, or maybe it was Cubs. Anyway, we did something on a Monday night that meant that I had to go to Andrew Bateman's house after school on a Monday. Mm. And they were a family who had a Monday tea, a Tuesday tea, a Wednesday tea, a Thursday tea, and a Friday tea every single week. But I was really lucky because Monday was always like fish fish fingers, chips, and beans. Nice. And I would never get that at home. So I was very excited about that. We do a lot of fish fingers for Ed these days. You it's can just get a, very good fish fingers. You can, get, you can buy fancy cod battered doujons or whatever, but you, if you just get some proper fish fingers, that's, that's what they want. That's the money shot. That's what they're interested in. You, there's no point. This is, I mean, I, I don't do parental advice. I'm a very bad father. But the, um, when Bodhi is of an age, don't waste your time buying fancy art, artisanal, artisanal fish fingers. Just get actual fish fingers. Does that, you know, it's, all the, it's fine. It's just fish it's and yeah. breadcrumbs. It all gets it's a good way of getting your own back on your kids, though, isn't it? You can overheat them. Don't tell them. They burn their mouths. <laughs> so if they've been badly behaved or said something untoward, they've answered you back. Give them a, a boiling hot fish finger. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. I think you've said that before, Chin. I have so said I think, that before. I think you've done it, haven't you? I accidentally... Oh, sorry. Did I not tell you? They're boiling hot. Munch Don't away. Me. I don't think Chinch is pretending he's not done it. I think Chinch is, is making it abundant. He's confessing to something, if anything. I, I, I wouldn't say I'm confessing, but it might have happened. Oh. I d- I'm, I'm, very, I'm very much um, uh, in that camp, Rory, about um, making sure that my son has the cheapest version of something that is available in multiple formats, um, pretty much until he's aware that he's doing that. Because th- what, what is... What is the point of buying a brand version of anything? Until he's got- like, his first Christmas and his first birthday, I mean, frankly, if he gets one gift from his parents, he'll be lucky because he's going to be completely unaware of anything that comes his way. So what's the point? You, I thought that as well, but you do find yourself sort of guiltily. Like, just, I, I'm very much thinking, was thinking, like, you don't set the bar too high. You don't, you don't go bid for, like, the, the second birthday because then suddenly that's what they expect every year. Mm. Uh, the problem comes, we went to a, a birthday party a few weeks ago in a, in a lovely spot in a big outdoor garden, there was entertainment laid on. It was all, it wasn't fancy particularly, but it was a really nice sort of idyllic children's birthday party. And that's now what Ed thinks a children's birthday party looks like. And yeah. we, can't, we, we can't provide that. I'm not booking an entertainer, not a chance. The, um, so he's, he's, he's going to be disappointed with all of his birthday parties from now until he's about 18. Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Uh, there was a news story a couple of weeks ago which said that there's not going to be any toys at Christmas because of Brexit shortages. So oh, I saw that. there's a lesson you can learn your child. Do you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, it did strike me that that had perhaps been a story placed in the British press by Mattel. <laughs> to try and drive up by now to avoid sales. disappointment yeah that was that that had the ring of it works very much for mattel to say that there's going to be a toy shortage i have not noticed at all there's plenty of shortages in britain supermarkets at the moment but toys do not yet seem to be affected that's like the story that is a a, a survey has revealed that dot 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 and then you go down to the bottom of the survey which said commissioned by mattel philip yeah. morris has has sponsored a survey which finds that smoking makes you sexier yeah <laughs> 
and aren't the kids going to go, hold on a minute, it's Father Christmas, isn't it? It's not Mattel yeah, or the yeah, toy shops. True. They're going to say, yeah, hang yeah. on a minute, if there's a shortage of toys, what's Father Christmas playing at? What well, are the elves playing he, at? He needs the extra have they formed a union? They've gone on strike. What's going on? Brexit kids will blame Father Christmas. It's like FIFA. FIFA have done a survey that's revealed that people yeah, want yeah, to yeah. World Cup every two years. <laughs> that's not what that survey said at all. <laughs> But then UEFA do a survey. <laughs> UEFA do a survey that says that they don't, and actually, that f- what football fans really want is whatever UEFA think is best. It's amazing how these surveys work. <laughs> this is Seppi Spendy, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, bay leaves and licorice; Stephen Wyeth, pine cone and orange; and Andy Hinchcliffe, old candle barn. Uh, just some of the most popular potpourri fragrances of 2021, according to a much more arduous Google Old candle barn. What does old that smell? Can- what does that smell of? Is it an old candle in a barn, barn. or is it a candle in an old barn? Exactly, yes. I'm musty. I smell musty. There will be there will be irrelevance to that in just a moment. But first, the food is chinch. Would you like to tell us? Uh, well, this is... Uh, oh, Nikki's going to kill me. She, she made a delicious carrot cake. Now, I don't know how... how understanding how cakes work. How cakes work. You have these two flattened cylinders of uh, sponge. Yes, the top and the bottom of the cake. Filling... Ice it. And apparently she'd had problems with both the filling and the icing. It wouldn't set. And it wasn't it wasn't stable. And she didn't want to use, like, cake scaffolding. So she just thought, I'll put it in the fridge. I'll freeze the bugger. And it won't move. <laughs> apparently she put it in the fridge, left it for half an hour, went back to check on it, and the top half slid out onto the floor. <laughs> she managed to repair it. I don't know how she did that. And I've just eaten a, a chunk of it. And it is absolutely... It actually tastes better... With floor gravel, so it's it's a carrot cake. But how glad I imagine if I'd done that, I'd opened the fridge and the cake, the top of the cake, had just fell onto my trousers. I would not have been able to say it. it the cake did that. I didn't do that, but she did it. So thankfully, mercifully, it was her problem. But we're still eating it. I have a question. Mm. Why would open the fridge? have enabled the cake to fall onto your trousers. Do you do you adopt a sitting pose to open the fridge? I get very close. I get touch tight with my fridges. So when I when I open, like as a defender, when I'm up against Alan Shearer, I'd be touch tight. He'd be able to fill my trousers. So when I open the fridge, I've thrust my pelvis bridgeward. So if something falls out, it, it might be Cambozola, it, it might be a carrot cake. It's going to end up on my groin. This is how Chinch cools down. Too right. In, in Too our, in, right. In our September Indian summer, Chinch opens up the fridge. And you should see what I do to the place. freezer. I'm just, I'm just relieved there that you did. I, I thought you were going to launch into a mansplaining of, of how to make a carrot cake, which considering no idea. you look at the Nespresso machine with curiosity yeah. would have been oh, yeah. quite the extreme. I like the fact that Steve's just dated us as having recorded this a week, a week in advance because it is sunny the day that we're recording. But <laughs> yeah, by, sorry, by yeah. next week, it really won't be Steve. It will be tipping down for the sorry, next six Sorry, edit months. that out, Hugh. <laughs> no, we won't. We'll keep it in. Um, we are an honest podcast. The football is chinched. you know what we're talking about today? Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. It's something to do with... Well, we're a podcast, we talk about football. It's something to do with football, with a podcast flavour? Yes, due to the resounding success of the first edition of the SPM Soccer Pod Potpourri, and much earlier than you'd imagine that a well-organised production has to resort to, it is the second edition of what is actually simply a mailbag episode. Of course. Yes, that's it. We like to dress things up in an unnecessarily floral way, or like an old candle barn. It is um, also (laughs) uh, based on the fact that Rory is currently, as you listen to this, sojourning in Paris. 
Um, and we wanted to make sure he didn't get away with a week off actual work while also realising that a potpourri is a rare French word that the English language hasn't actually completely ruined. Uh, so given this is a correspondence-based offering, we can begin with the further ado, which will be the entire podcast. Let's get into it straight away with some correspondence. Sent to setpiecemenu at gmail.com, most likely an amount of time ago that means I had originally forgotten this existed. Um, the first, and probably for reasons just articulated, is a recent email from Matthew Cox. Dear Frank, Charlie, Mac and Dennis, I've been catching up on the pod after a couple of months off. Really like the episode on siege mentalities, especially because of how Jose Mourinho in particular became completely tedious about it a while ago and everybody knew exactly what he was doing to the point that when he went on about something else after a match and another one of his rants, TV pundits and presenters would say immediately, so he's just trying to distract from such and such a result. What struck me about the ESPN tweet and Jack Grealish's apparent need to silence his doubters, you might remember, uh, formed a large part of our conversation about siege mentalities, was the way it reminded me of something uh, Kylian Mbappe put on social media after Lyon beat Manchester City in the Champions League in 2020. He said Farmers League in an apparent response to people dismissing the quality of Ligue 1. What is tiresome about this is that few people, if any, actually think the French League is a Farmers League, whatever that means. There are hundreds of leagues in the world and the French League is in the top 10 at least in terms of quality. So people are only saying that for banter purposes. <laughs> Never mind, Hugh interjects here, uh, making a straw man argument for yourself to absolutely smash down. It doesn't actually make sense, continues Matthew. But Mbappe apparently felt it was worthy of a mocking response, so he gave some back, which of course led to people defending their repeated dismissal of that league. The point is, is that both Mbappe's tweet and ESPN's with a result of what I suppose you'd call the legitimization of banter. Manchester United, for example, fans would, of course, doubt Grealish, but that's either coming from a place of clear bias or the need to demean City from any angle, regardless of how sound the logic is. He has few, if any, actual doubters of his ability at this point. The French League gets mockery often as a stick with which to beat Neymar and now Messi or PSG's league titles in general. Neither are real points, for they are generally exaggerated and made with obvious ulterior motives. But social media in particular has led to more and more organisations or even players taking them seriously enough to legitimise, which then cultivates even more tiresome siege mentalities or maybe just a lot of chips on shoulders. Keep up the good pod. Thanks, Matthew Cox. So specifically that argument or that point made by Matthew about the legitimisation of banter, which in my point, from my point of view and to perhaps, perhaps uh, help our conversation, is about creating straw man arguments so that you can own people on social media. I think there's a difference between players getting involved in, in those pointless, futile and childish arguments, which I get it. I get why Kylian Mbappe would have seen, would have been aware of the fact that there is a farmer's league kind of meme effectively to the way the, Fr the French football is viewed and would like to like bite back a little bit, clap back, I believe is the, um, is the, is the term. Probably not. I've probably got that wrong, to be fair. But I can see why, why a player, you know, just footballers are young. We don't think of them as being young, but they are young. They are part of that world. He will be, he will see to whatever extent Kylian Mbappe actually engages with his own social media, I presume it's the bulk of it's run by his team, but he will see to some extent the that conversation happening around his achievements and his team's achievements. And I can understand that he would want to, to have a go back when an opportunity arises. I find it more problematic when institutions do, particularly in the media, because the media has a... Has a Part of the, the media's role is not just to reflect the conversations that are happening, but to shape them and not to legitimise certain parts of them. And I think the, the problem has been that 
in the desire to create more engagement, which can then be monetized, a lot of media brands have got involved with doing things that are, to be honest, a little bit beneath them. And that there is, there is, you see it a lot with it, and this isn't picking on ESPN, who do a, lot, do a lot of really good stuff and are a great network, and I used to, to do some work for, so I don't have a problem with ESPN at all. But that you see quite often that they will tweet something with a picture of Bruno Fernandes or, or whoever, and it will be a slightly stupid quote from either someone talking about that person or an unnecessarily kind of decontextualized quote from that person which is clearly meant to create debate and there'll be a little kind of tagline on it or whatever and clearly the plan there is that you get you tweet you know a picture of bruno and a quote that's you know bruno fernandez saying i am the greatest footballer in the world and it'll just be the all the only comment espn will, will make will be like the eyes emoji or something and the idea is clearly that that then brings people in who fo who then think i'm, I'm going to follow espn as they've got this great kind of engaging content and and then that might mean that those people are more likely to click on the links to espn's articles or whatever that's clearly the the plan the problem i have with that is that i, I think that reduces the conversation to the base level and the banter the, banter which yeah well i wouldn't even use banter i think it's i think it's actually more insidious than banter it's designed to i, I don't know banter is pretty insidious it's pretty insidious but it's worse in the way than that, that it's used in the way that it is legitimized there are plenty of plenty of examples where it is it's it's something that's deliberately um, not conf confrontational, but it's it's to inspire debate. It's designed. The BBC do it as well. It's designed to inspire debate, and that creates engagement. And I think the the problem is that the media indulges that that reflex too often, and what you get is a lot of things that are designed to inspire debate, but are actually should just be ignored because they're not correct opinion. You know, they're, they're not opinions that should be within the Overton window of correct opinions. They shouldn't be. They're not within the, the the realms of like what is reasonable to think or whatever, and I think that's a that that in itself is a really dangerous precedent that's been set. That's that's the problem to me. We get this a lot in in the leagues that we cover on BT Sport, so the Italian and the French this season, when the 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 clips of goals are tweeted out by the B, BT Sport football Twitter feed. And generally the comments either are people tagging their mates in to take a look or it is Farmer's League, the tractor emoji or an awful lot. Oh, but what about the defending or what's the goalkeeper up to? And that is, I guess, all well and good in terms of badinage up until the point that if the player that is scoring that goal is suddenly linked with their team in the Premier League, it will be used as evidence to demonstrate what a great signing they are going to be and what a baller that player is and what a great bit of transfer business their club is doing. So it just infuriates me. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, oh yeah, but this player's doing it in a farmer's league and then the minute they're linked with a move to a big Premier League club, those, those same goals are used as evidence as to why this is the greatest bit of business and they have won the transfer window. But there's, there's a really interesting dynamic at play in the nature of online fandom that, that is really strange. So obviously we, we've talked a load about kind of how fans of clubs behave in good and bad ways online and, and there's no point um, retreading that ground. And equally I think it's well established and we've probably discussed in the past like fans of individual players, that kind of stanning culture that, that 
applies in K-pop and in football. So you'll, you'll get people who are like Neymar fans. Beyond beyond anything else, they, their loyalty is, is to Neymar. And although as traditional football fans, you can be really dismissive of that. It's a trend. It is a thing. It is a way that people engage with with the sport, and it applies across the world. It applies in different sports. You get it in basketball as well, and and presumably in things like track and field and all that stuff. So that that is a legitimate thing. I find the the two types of fans that you see on social media that I find weirdest are like the anti-fans. So it's people who seem to devote their entire being to not being a fan of Lionel Messi. And so as soon as Messi scores, you see it a lot on, on, on replies. I might write something about this at some point. On replies to official club accounts, like Crystal Palace will tweet something and you'll get low. The first responses will always be people responding really quickly with Bruno Penandeses or Lionel Pessis or Penandos, hang on, Penaldos stats. And it will always be this weird kind of like doll stored against this or that, you know, doll stored against teams that are actually semi-amateur, doll stored against goalkeepers with no legs or, you know, it, it's this weird impulse to, and I don't know whether they're real people or whether they're bots, but it's this weird impulse. As soon as you have an opportunity that your first thought is, I must, I must delegitimize this other person who's completely relevant to this whole occasion's achievement. It's re it's genuine. I would recommend to anybody. I've not explained that very well. Recommend to anybody. Look at the replies to official tweets from sorry to tweets from official club accounts. They are beyond strange. Um, and the other type of fan that I find weird are the fans of a specific league. It's that is a really weird thing that you support the Premier League so much that you're determined to talk down the French League, which, in it, as Steve has just said, is, is really obviously stupid because half the Premier League's players are going to come from the French League anyway. So what you're effectively doing is is preemptively asserting that your team's new signing is shit. It makes no sense to do it. Yeah. But also, why are you doing it? What? Why are you so invested in one league being better than another that you don't want the Spanish League to be good? Like, who, like why is that a thing? Also, I, I, I don't understand it. And fashion, fashioning the debate to allow you to make your point. So you, and this is the point that was that, that Matthew's trying to make is that you are setting up a point so that you can knock it down, which is a straw man argument. But also, it's the the and and he says it is his phrase the legitimization of banter. It is usually using what would normally be, as Stephen says, badinage, but using it as something that isn't dressed up as that. So it's being used to almost promote the point into the serious world, yeah. even though it is not that. Mm. But but also, I, 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 but then I, I wonder if that's part of, of the process that's at play, which is that because so many people live their lives out loud online, that you become basically a supporter more, more than anything of your own previously expressed views. So you end up having said, having made a thing about Hang on, I'm about to be passed a note by my dad. <laughs> um, the, you better talk is that the out. Sandwich, is the sandwich ready? Yeah. Um, this yeah, is yeah. the point in Match of the Day, Rory, where Gary Lineker picks up his glasses, yeah. puts them on the, end, on the end of his some, nose. and uh... Some breaking news here. My dad will be eating in 20 minutes. Uh, <laughs> the uh, People live their lives out loud so much now online that you become a fan more than anything, less of a team, less of a lead, less of a player, than of supporting your own opinion. Hmm. There's a there's a performance element to a lot of it. I think that's right. There is a banter element to, to a lot of it. It's done to get just as much as the as ESPN are tweeting that stuff to get engagement. People are tweeting things that they know to be, in that case, d definitively confrontational. 
to get engagement from other people, but they are also doing it to what extent it's serious, I don't know, to support an opinion that they have previously expressed. It is a form, this sounds really stupid, but it is a form of online radicalization. That because you once said that Bruno Fernandes is a bit overrated, six months later you are referring to him exclusively as Penandes, as though that's witty, and doing it in response to a tweets from the official Burnley club account about a game that does not involve Manchester United. That is a form of being radicalised by your own desire to be proved correct. Uh, thank you to Matthew, uh, our first um, uh, first contributor to our Soccer Pod Potpourri episode two. Uh, Rob Jones is from Ruthin in North Wales and is an architect. That's how he signs off. So I have all the information at the beginning of the at the beginning of the email. Good afternoon, Paul, Barry, Jimmy, and Brian. Uh, Chuckle Vision, he says, again, mm. helpfully. Long-time listener, first-time caller. I stumbled across SPM approximately three years ago, having listened to football podcasts for approximately 13 years. From experience, I rarely anticipate a weekly release as the market has been flooded over recent years to varying degrees of quality. However, SPM stands head and shoulders above them all, providing in-depth insight into the bigger questions, sidestepping the day-to-day -day outrage. Having spent much of the pandemic shielding due to the immu immunosuppressant medication I take to control my Crohn's disease, this one-hour podcast a week has provided some solace, so thank you. I could stop there, but he actually does have a question. On to my question. How important are personal relationships within the team dynamic? I know this is something that has been touched on in the past, but as a Liverpool fan and season ticket holder, I believe the fallout between Mohamed Salah and Sadio Mane in autumn of 2019 was more significant than the initial media coverage suggested. To my untrained eye, they clearly do not get on. This is notable in goal celebrations with the other player phoning it in. I understand it is a bit of a leap to suggest that this goes some way to contributing to Liverpool's poor season. However, I would be interested in your thoughts regarding its impact on a team's fortunes. There are numerous other examples such as Cole versus Sheringham or the very much darker Terry versus Bridge saga. How do you deal with personal problems and stop them spilling over into a full-blown civil war? Thank you again for all the quality content. Keep up the good work. That's from Rob Jones. So Chinch, I know you hated Paul Jewell, but did you hate anybody else who was a player? I didn't I didn't hate Paul Jewell. I just didn't respect him. Um <laughs> so, actually, uh, yes. they, does that well, make I, sense to you whether whether personal relationships impact Well, it's never if you if you take 25 sports men or women put them together and whether they were playing sport or not, you're going to have issues really with, with who you get on with and who you don't. And I think being sportsmen, it can be exacerbated as well because of the the situation and the pressure that you're under. But I, I'm trying to think of the, the teams I played for. I clearly never fell out with anyone. A lot of people hated me, but they, they didn't tell me, which was the important part. Um, but there weren't well, too many... They thought you were aloof, Chinch. They thought, they thought you were just... It wasn't worth it, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't worth the bother of trying to bring me down a peg. They, they knew. Just let him play a few more games. He'll, 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 he'll implode. They saw you. Uh, the they didn't trust you. Yeah, they. All right, Steve. There's no need for this. Huh? It's, it's bad enough when I played. I don't need it now. Are you still. You talk about me as a player, aren't you? Not now. You don't. You're trust in everything. I'm you, just you, you trust me, don't you? Whether your point extends to uh, four middle-aged men doing a podcast. I mean, there's always going to be friction. There, there is. There is, and sometimes you just have to let certain people have their way and I tended to do that maybe on the football pitch apart from when it came for to free kicks and corners for Everton for about a two year period where I would basically push people in the face and say Anders Limpar I'm taking this one and so no I don't think there was too many it, when it's good it's very good remember Everton the Dogs of War team that we had but there were certain players that, that didn't get on with each other but it didn't seem to come to fisticuffs or anything that really did affect us when we played we could hopefully put it to one side and even if I didn't get on with people I didn't like them it still once you 
went out there, it, it kind of all got put aside and you tried to do the best. You generally tried to do the best for each other. So it was more maybe problems in the dressing room when you weren't playing, you know, training days and stuff like that. That tended, or when you were travelling or away on black pre-season tours and stuff, when you were kind of stuck together, not in your own normal environment, not able to go home. I think that can cause a, a few more issues as well. And then, of course, when people have a, a few drinks, uh, it can go slightly... Arai, Martin Keown, Kevin Sheedy. It can lose its it can lose its way a little bit, uh, but no, I, I don't remember too many. But then there must be because again, groups of people. It's not all going to go swimmingly, is it? I, I do think from the outside that that we that fans in general are too invested in whether their team their teams players like each other. Really? Or indeed, like the cl- or support really? the club as well. Yeah, That's I think fans fans care. liking the club is is yeah, I can understand that. But liking each other, I think fans care about whether their team, whether the, the players on their team are friends in a way that is a bit weird. Not weird. I think it's that's wrong. I think it's so. The Salah Mane thing. Liverpool fans would have been uncomfortable if there's any kind of animosity there. Well, I I think the Salah Mane thing is slightly overblown. Mm. I, I think they might not be particularly close. You kind of know who um, who certainly Salah's closest. Pals in the Liverpool dressing dressing room, it was Lovren and it's now Simicast. They clearly aren't. Maybe they don't get on great, but I don't think they're kind of. I don't think they're kind of they're at each other's throats every day. I, th- there's an element where that again is encouraged a bit by the media because there's a, there's a it, it's an easy story to understand and it's an easy story to kind of. Um, and there's to, confirmation bias so everything into, that happens yeah, yeah, yeah. subsequently you think ah that's because of that even if it might be a very minor mm-hmm. thing yeah. so you see Mane not celebrating Salah's goals or whatever and you think well they obviously don't get on I think that, that yeah I, I, there's a germ there's a kernel of truth in it from what I know but I don't think it's nearly as kind of pronounced as people think it is I, yeah it's not that they, they don't speak to each other or anything like that they're just not particularly close but more generally I don't think it matters that players don't get on that well I don't think that is particularly important there's that is true of it sounds really stupid but that is true of quite a lot there'll be like army units where the people might have a bit of a personal rivalry or whatever but they I don't think it, it means that they don't do I mean that's what being a professional is surely is that you don't let your personal feelings get in the way of your I mean I famously don't like you and yet we still we still do this podcast. Tolerate each other. And yeah. is it, I mean, I'm yeah. very much the Mohamed Salah. You're very much the but if Sadio Mane. But Rory, but Rory, if you were you're cleaning on goal, you'd dance past the goalkeeper and you were at a slight angle that was against you and you had Hugh just for a square pass to tap into an empty net. Would you take the shot on yourself or would you lay it on a plate for him? T- two things Have, here. Having seen Hugh play football. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say... It's having, not a great comparison to me. Having, having <laughs> seen Rory Smith play football, I would also counter that if I was genuinely Mohamed Salah, he still wouldn't pass it to me. So. I famously... Have I told the Andy Hunter story? So we played in a, in a media game at Goodison Park uh, in like 2009. We were invited to play at Goodison. And it was a lovely day. We all had a nice time. Had um, I think I was being coached by whichever Snowden brother is the one who's always at Everton, Ian Snowden. Ian Snowden, yeah. Who's yeah. a lovely man. Yeah. Mark Halsey refereed us. Kept abusing me. Don't know why. Uh, <laughs> gave me a gave me a low view of referees there. Uh, anyway, we were we were attacking the park end, and um, it's two o'clock. <laughs> I thought we you were, had an idea. We, <laughs> it isn't, by the way, so you might no, want to adjust that clock. Yeah, no, the, that grandfather clock is, is useless. Um, we were attacking the park end, and I, I, I burst, I was a younger man, I burst down the left-hand side of the box mm. in a great position just across it for Andy Hunter, steaming in at the, um, at the far post, would have had a tap-in, would have been a certain goal, 
Uh, but it was on my left foot and I didn't really fancy it. So I tried to shoot with a Rabona. And uh, <laughs> to be fair, like I made contact. I made I made contact with the ball and it, the shot went on target. With, with the was, standing foot. <laughs> it, was a, it was an easy enough, the goalkeeper just caught it. And I've never seen anyone as angry as Andy Hunter, who was a genuinely lovely man, uh, as Andy Hunter was with me. That was 12 years ago, and Andy will still occasionally mention it, and not in a... Not in a there is no legitimisation of banter there. He is still quite cross about it. But football can do that to you. Nice men can turn into, into monsters, monsters but, then, but yeah. then they but put a pair had, of boots on. That had a direct impact on his team's fortunes, so that, that's perhaps mm. saying something that we hadn't uh, previous I, to that. I can admit, admit this now. It was the right choice. I don't regret anything. <laughs> um, thank you to, to Rob uh, for that email. Here's David Louie with the next one. Dear Kramer, Elaine, George and Jerry. Long time listener, first time correspondent. I'm a big fan of the pod and recommend it as the most analytical, reasoned and thought-provoking football podcast I listen to. I'm known for sending episodes to mates in an attempt to explain points that I've tried to make without your eloquence. I've long arg- argued the championship is more enjoyable for fans than the Premier League, for example. The range of perspectives you've put... Yes, it goes on. The range of perspectives you provide from commentator, journalist, presenter and pundit result in a really vibrant melting pot good for the soul and the brain he really gets us doesn't he i wondered if you might discuss what we the fans do not appreciate about football from the outside what are the aspects of football that are not well understood by those outside the sport what do we outside the ropes not appreciate that players and journalists and administrators know instinctively what are the common misconceptions Uh, thanks again david from north london rather unexotically i think referees being deliberately biased or having favorite teams is something that really doesn't ring true we have touched on it in the past sometimes they're just having a bad game they're not deliberately being awful towards your team or making terrible decisions because they had a bad experience the last time they visited your club sometimes humans just make errors and a lot of the time the the decisions that in the heat of the moment you believe to be utterly scandalous, if you just took a step back and and looked at it with a bit of perspective, you would understand that really either it wasn't as bad as you first thought and you might have to accept that or do you know what mistakes are made in life and, and that's why we've got VAR now, so that the mistakes can be rubber stamped by somebody else that 200 miles away. I think I think the, um, the the perspective word is an important one, and it's something that uh, would be if we had a greatest hits album, uh, would be at least track one or two, and that's to say that our perspective heading into covering football is not a perspective about who we support and who we love and who we like. It is a perspective, a professional one. For how do we keep our job and not lose it? Uh, frankly, is the most important thing, and the only thing that we, we discussed it again before is the only thing that we do let. a f- let affect us in terms of emotions is actually nothing to do with the team support It's to do with the people within the industry that we have come to know and like sometimes that relates to a team sometimes that relates to a player sometimes that just relates to a nice press officer who gave you an interview with somebody that you wanted but genuinely those relationships are the things that bind us more closely even though our love for our clubs um, would be something that we would probably say is a stronger emotional bond I got distracted by the sight of Hector trying to hunt a fly, which is very funny. The one that the one for me is probably around transfers with, and the way that they work. I find... Plates of Kit Kats. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of Kit Kats involved that people just don't realise. Like a lot of it's down to... What confectionery sort of, in general. What sort, yeah. of confe- what sort of confectionery platter you can put on at your house? Yep. That is, I mean, yeah, a that celebrations, is a, bit, yeah. a whole box oh. of celebrations. I'm signing for you. Yeah. Absolutely. The, with the bounties picked out. <laughs> 
That is, that's love. Another, um, another weird, irrational <laughs> hatred, courtesy you, of Rory Smith. I can tell you wanted to sign me because you'd removed all of the bounties from this bowl of celebrations. Um, the, the idea that it's some sort of weird... I think it's actually presented wrongly. And the, no matter how many times the Athletic run, run a piece on the reality of the transfer window, they never seem to, even in you know, several tens of thousands of words, they never actually seem to be able to address this, that it isn't a process of sort of unsolicited phone calls in which you put a bid in, that in most cases, it's just an ongoing chat between two parties who are vaguely interested in doing a deal with each other. And it's the, the idea that, that kind of offers go in as written, you know, sort of slipped on a napkin. There you go, it's 40 million pounds. It's not, it's it's kind of, everyone kind of knows roughly what they're doing. Or like it's a ransom note or a demand yeah, note like or something. It's not, it's not, they're not cut out of newspapers, you know, or magazines, like it's, Everyone knows roughly what the figure is, and there's a, an ongoing conversation between different parties about how you reach a, you know, a, a settlement that's, that's acceptable to everybody. And I think the, the way that they're framed as being these kind of dramatic interventions where Real Madrid go away and plot and then call Leonardo and say, it's, now it's 170 million euros. It's not, well, in that case, that's probably a bad example. But in most <laughs> cases, that's not really how it works. Like it's, the clubs are in contact with each other. Intermediaries are in, con in contact with each other on behalf of the clubs more normally. Um, and they work together to try and find a figure in a way that can be confrontational and unpleasant but often I, d I get the impression isn't really because they they're all kind of aware that this is how it works and I think that is something that is almost deliberately stoked up by kind of transfer culture to make it more dramatic whereas in reality it's a fairly fairly boring bilateral process the other one which I guess is similar to what I said previously about referees is football commentators and I suppose all sorts of football journalists who are constantly tarred with the brush of supporting a particular club and the evidence often used is you could tell from the way that they commentated on that goal that they were either desperate for that team to score or they were furious that that goal had been scored I have never ever seen anybody correctly guess on social media who a football commentator supports on the basis of how they commentated yeah. on a goal so it's it's probably best to just move on and accept that the ebb and flow of the game is normally what determines how excited or otherwise a commentator is about a goal being scored. And I will mention my BT Sport colleague, Adam Summerton, who covers the National League for BT Sport and is constantly hounded on social media by fans of National League clubs after games as his coverage of that game being absolutely cast iron proof of how much he either loves or dislikes that team. It's like... He doesn't support a national league side. He his responsibility is to the broad is to the broadcast is is to the production is to the coverage of the game. He is not furious that Stockport County have equalised. <laughs> from a from a playing point of view, our fans they, they maybe say that they are. Are they genuinely aware of the fitness levels and speed of thought of professional footballers? Even because again, there's well, yeah, the players look leaner and fitter, and we, yeah, well, God, they're incredibly fit. Do they fully understand how how fit and how quickly players think? The, it reminds me of a. I don't know whether I told the story of when we had uh, Everton. There was a a Polish flying winger, Robert Varzika, who came to play for us, and he had an interpreter, Varzika, yeah. very good player, great moustache. He uh, had a, an interpreter with him, 
for maybe the first couple of months. And you, you can get a sense that this lad had played a bit of football and was watching us train and everything and really wanted to join in. So one day, I think Neville Southall said to him, right, put a pair of boots on, come and join in and see whether you can... And have you ever seen, you ever seen those keep ball sessions where basically you have a circle of players and you have um, an interpreter in the middle trying to get the ball back. And to watch, it was... It really brought home to me again. Now he might have been a, a decent of a decent step, but he couldn't. He just couldn't get anywhere near the ball. Was again by the time he got anywhere close, it, it already two passes had been made. And then I think when Peter Beersley came to Everton, the speed of thought of he was again a level up on players that very good players that I'd played with, and just the fitness levels, the amount of work that players do, the amount of ground that they cover to enable them just to run about on a football pitch, let alone play is extraordinary and it's something that maybe you underestimate when you've done it for a long time and you just think well this is just second nature but when you see someone step in from the outside and try and get involved in in what the professional players would do you see the difference and maybe that is still lost a little bit that just the genuine fitness levels of players to play the game my i i think that might be the biggest the biggest misconception from everyone outside football and i'd include anyone who are even people who are liminal to football in that that just how good bad players are is is yeah. massively yeah. misunderstood. That you can look at a player, I mean, this is a point we made before, but you can look at a player, be convinced that a player is absolutely useless and they will be infinitely beyond, unimag- like, unimaginably better than, than you could ever be at football. Funny, Kate and I went for a walk with Ed the other day and we, we happened upon uh, what looked like Ilkley under-15s playing a game. And we stopped and watched. I'm trying to get Ed used to kind of watching football and in the hope that he'd just leave me alone whilst I'm trying to watch a game on telly. And he, we sat there for like 10, 15 minutes. And they were, they were quite good. Like they were playing, it was, I said to Kate, it was interesting that they, um, they all pass it around. These, these are, you know, these, these will be relatively posh kids from a nice bit of Yorkshire. And they all pass it around at the back. And they all, they, their first touch is pretty good. And they all, they clearly want to build play through the thirds. They've listened to their zonal marking. And they, they, um, they kind of play play a football that would have been considered fancy Dan when I was playing football in a posh bit of Yorkshire, thirty years ago. Does he, that that was the goalkeeper took the kick. In fact, the goalkeeper didn't take the kick. The players would kick it furthest, to the yes. kick, yes. and they kicked, they kicked it as far as they could. And you tried to fight for it, and then the ball went out of play, and then the opposition goal team got their player who would kick it furthest to take the kick, and the team that won was the goal, was the team with the goalkeeper that took their own kicks. And that was what football was. But now it's all about building play, and everyone was very good, and there were some nice moves and stuff. And I was quite impressed. And Kate, Kate said to me, how far off... There was a couple of players who stood out, and Kate said, you, you know, will, she sort of said, will any of these kids be in academies? And I said, no, none of these kids will... Even the best player on that pitch will never get close to being in an academy. And even the best player in an academy will probably not get close to being a professional footballer. And even the ones that go on to be professional footballers will not get close to playing in the Premier League. And the ones that go on to play in the Premier League will not get close to being the best player in the Premier League. Because it is, it's, you know, it's one in billions of chance that you're going to be good enough to do that. And we, we continually, consistently underestimate how incredible at football the worst player on the worst team in League Two is. <laughs> And this is po- it's probably particularly true of football, Rory, because a majority of people watching football have played yep. the game to some, whether that's five aside or even eleven aside during their youth and maybe even into adulthood. It was a point I, I saw made during the the coverage of the the Tokyo Olympics, where they, they the, the sort of it, people are aghast 
at what they witness every four years during the Olympics, what these elites athletes are capable of doing but that is no less true of elite level footballers it's just you're much more likely to have played football than you are to have had a go at pole vault it's well yeah exactly i mean i i was a very keen pole vaulter just amateur i have had a go on, at pole vault by the way on the on the street used to just vault over stuff I if i could vaulted over it. get a stick go over a hedge um i had a conversation with someone during the olympics and this sounds really bad it sounds very football centric it's not meant to but if you think about the number of people competing to become Olympic standard pole vaulters and the, the dedication and the skill and the talent it takes to do that, and then compare it to the number of people competing to become professional footballers, mm. there is an argument to be made that professional footballers are better at their chosen discipline than any other athlete is at their chosen discipline in the world. They are, mm. they are I mean, we take the piss out of change, rightly so. But if you think of how good Chinch had to be at football to see off all the other people who wanted to be footballers and it, the level of talent that he had and all he got was seven lousy caps is... Think about how good that makes him at football. He is one of the... Of all the people who've ever lived, one of the best football... In, a, in that context, Chinch is one of the best footballers of all time because there's millions, tens, hundreds of millions of people who wanted to be footballers, none of whom were anywhere close as good as Chinch. So he is in the top million footballers in eternity. <laughs> you know broken mean? the million! Get in! It was good until the last minute. Um, finally, from Chris Bright. Dear Rory and supporting cast. Long time listener, first time email it. This is a theme, isn't it? I was on my daily walk to my place of work, so I put my earbuds in and started listening to the excellent episode 138. Yes, this is a long time ago. As I started walking and listening, my father sent me a notification as we had been enjoying a friendly yet tense game of chess through the medium of iMessage. I casually skipped over to my messages and opened up the board while still listening to the pot. To my surprise, soft piano lounge music started to play. The kind of music you'd hear on an episode of Frasier. It's the first time playing chess with my earbuds in, and I'd never heard this come out of the phone speakers, so I was indeed surprised. However, the pod did not stop playing to make way for the soft piano lounge music. What I then witnessed was the effect of smooth piano lounge music on how I interpreted what the team was saying. My initial reaction was to turn off iMessage, but no, I lingered with the app open for a few seconds, and in those few seconds it was like hearing SPM for the first time again. Suddenly, everyone's opinion became more erudite. Words and phrases seemed to drip with intelligence. The soft Mancunian accent of Chinch became like listening to Kelsey Grammer himself. The pod was about the legitimate football voice, and at that moment, there were no more legitimate voices than those I was listening to whilst being lightly serenaded. Have you considered introducing some background music to your pod? On the surface of it, it sounds ridiculous. This is a football podcast after all. However, by simply opening up your iMessage chess plugin, you too will realise that everyone will benefit from some smooth, smooth lounge piano music uh, whilst you discuss a hot football topic. You're smoothly Chris Bright. So perhaps if you just started discussing a hot football topic, we'll see what happens. What does everyone make about the, the Derby County situation? Administration, just another club in financial trouble. Are we surprised? It, it, is, it is very funny that, not funny, sad, harrowing, but also funny, that after we had the whole outpouring of um, of sadness about Berry, what, two years ago, pre-pandemic, mm-hmm. that Derby now are going, for different reasons, into um, d- descending into into a, a into the mire. And also you've got Oldham, who could well go the same way as, as Berry. 
This is just this is just Hugh showing off, isn't it? That Hugh Ferris can play the piano, everybody. Tough luck, ladies. He's married. This is, <laughs> this is absolutely abysmal. He's got a muslin square over his shoulder anyway. He's undercut by his his kind of image as a sort of Renaissance man is is undercut by the fact that, as far as I can tell, he's literally just put a baby on the floor so he can play the piano. Gemma's <laughs> going to come back in in a second and be like, "My God, what have you done?" As the baby, I don't know, crawls into an electric in, into an electrical socket, or maybe Hughes put it in the bin. Anyway, keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thanks to me, Andy, Rory and uh, your piano player. Don't forget to tip him on the way out. Uh, and to all of you for listening, we'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Is, is that a piece? Is, that, is he playing a piece? No, he's just riffing. Is he just riffing? Is he just, he's yeah. literally just showing off how good he is. Can he's, he do uh, can he do tunes? Can you play We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel? He's, he's decided that his, his next career career adventure is going to be, you know, the producing those CDs of background music that get mm. distributed in the hope that they might be used by uh, radio stations or they play them in lifts and stuff like that. Well, music. The, yeah. There is a brilliant um there's a brilliant podcast on Muzak that I listened to that um oh was it Decoder Ring? It might have been Decoder Ring by Slate, who did it a, a a, br- a really, really genuinely interesting podcast on the history of Muzak. Because um, Muzak is from Seattle, which is obviously where Grunge is from. That's where it all started. And it's, I would recommend it to anybody who's sick of listening to Hugh play the piano.